Welcome to HealthCast, the heartbeat of health IT. I'm your host, Melissa Harris. Eating disorders are one of the most common mental illnesses in America. The National Eating Disorders Association, or NIDA, says that 30 million Americans will suffer from eating disorders in their lifetime. And eating disorders have the highest mortality rate of all mental illnesses behind opioid use disorder. Despite the commonality of eating disorders, they look so drastically different from person to person, often being an invisible illness to most of us, as we'll talk about today. Luckily, this week is National Eating Disorders Awareness Week, a campaign largely supported by NIDA. We're here today to talk about the Awareness Week, which this year is themed around uplifting underrepresented communities who suffer from eating disorders. And in the spirit of HealthCast, to also talk with some top researchers in the eating disorder field about how they're innovating to treat and understand this complex illness. Their work with genomics, real-time physiological data, and wearable technologies particularly show how technology has a key role to play in the eating disorder research and treatment space for personalized medicine. This special episode will be in three parts. The first, to discuss eating disorders and to dispel some myths about them. And the second, to dive into the way technology and precision medicine are helping increase the effectiveness of and accessibility to treatment. Last, I'll talk with my guests about the impact of COVID-19 on eating disorders and what resources and help are out there to mitigate these disorders. Part 1. The Invisible Disease National Eating Disorder Awareness Week is about uplifting information, resources, and help for people with or caring for someone with eating disorders. But first of all, it's important to hash out what these disorders are and how they range from person to person. We'll hear from Dr. Cynthia Bulick, the founding director of the National Center of Excellence for Eating Disorders at UNC Chapel Hill. Eating disorders are not monolithic, so they're not just one thing. In fact, they're quite diverse. So they range all the way from, I think, the stereotypic eating disorder that people always think about is anorexia nervosa, which of course is the visible eating disorder because people lose a lot of weight and you can see that they're underweight. But the rest of the eating disorders like bulimia nervosa, binge eating disorder, avoidant restrictive food intake disorder, these are not visible disorders and also atypical anorexia nervosa, where you have all of the symptoms of anorexia, but your body is still at normal weight or even in the overweight range. Given how different these disorders are, I wanted to return to the statistic that 30 million Americans suffer from these various disorders in their lifetimes. I spoke with Nita to find out what those 30 million people look like. That 30 million American statistic can be broken down into 20 million women and 10 million men. That's Chelsea Kroningold, NIDA Office of Communications Director. Admittedly, this statistic, and quite frankly, most statistics, need to be updated since we know that there are so many non-binary and genderqueer folks who also struggle with these illnesses. Historically, people thought that only young, white, affluent, thin women could have an eating disorder, and we know that this just isn't the case. So in addition to gender, eating disorders also don't discriminate based on age, race, sexuality, socioeconomic status, ability, and even size. So anybody in any size body can have an eating disorder. 
And it's also important to know in terms of statistics that eating disorders have the second highest mortality rate of all mental health disorders, surpassed only by opioid abuse. Yet they often have some of the lowest funding and awareness around them. Dr. Sherry Levinson, University of Louisville's Eating Anxiety Treatment Lab Director, also mentioned how the skewed portrayal of eating disorders often contributes to the invisible nature of eating disorders. But on top of that, eating disorders often hide so they can thrive in individuals. I think that one of the reasons why eating disorders are so invisible is that there are so many stereotypes around having an eating disorder. So the media really portrays eating disorders as something that just happens to young white women, when in reality, they actually impact people of all ages, races, ethnicities, sexual orientations, genders, etc. And another really big part of the illness is just that the eating disorder doesn't want to be seen, right? So the eating disorder will do all it can to keep itself hidden because it knows that if it's hidden, there's less likely that it's going to get treated and have to go away. So part of the illness is actually hiding the eating disorder and making it invisible. And it's really important to heighten awareness because we actually know that when there are mentions of eating disorders in the media, when there's an eating disorder awareness week, we see huge increases in treatment seeking. Uh, And that's really, really important because we want people to get help from an eating disorder and talking about it and normalizing it and providing resources really helps people be able to know where to even start to seek treatment or to get help. Normalizing talk around eating disorders is important. Remember that mortality statistic I talked about before with these disorders? Dr. Levinson really grounded that and reminded me especially why it's important to heighten awareness around eating disorders. I think there's two statistics that really point out the importance and severity of these illnesses. So the first one is just on the severity of of eating disorders. So one thing that we know, unfortunately, is that eating disorders have very high mortality rates. And one thing that I think really brings that home to me is that every 52 minutes, we know that somebody dies from an eating disorder. That's a lot of preventable deaths, right? The other statistic that I think is really important and gets at the second part of your question is just thinking about the prevalence of eating disorders, right? So uh, those estimates out there that 30 million Americans have an eating disorder are probably actually underestimates because we don't really do that good of a job of capturing eating disorders and reaching all of the people that have eating disorders and assessing it in a way that you get a valid response, right? But when we are looking at these big US-wide samples of people who are answering questions about eating disorders, one thing that we actually find is that they're very, very common, even and especially even in kids and adolescents. So out of 100,000 kids and adolescents, when we're looking at illnesses that are common in that population, 120 of those kids and adolescents will have Down syndrome. 56 will die from sudden infant death syndrome. 15 will have cancer. 12 will have type 2 diabetes. And 2,900 will have an eating disorder. So 
staggeringly high in comparison to these other very serious illnesses that we know about and do a ton of research on. Eating disorders are just significantly more common and prevalent in our kids and adolescents and across all ages. But I think the kids and adolescents piece really points at the second part of your question is how do we help this? How do we prevent this, right? Because it can seem to be a fine line between healthy behavior and disordered eating, right? And I think that what we really need to think about is how our society as a whole talks about health and eating and wellness, right? So we've actually found in our data that in the state of Kentucky, and this is similar in other states across the United States, about 50% of 12-year-olds say that they're on a diet. And dieting is one of the biggest risk factors for developing an eating disorder. And I don't know about you, but any 12-year-old that I know, I just find it heartbreaking to think that they would feel as though they need to be on a diet at age 12 when they should be growing still and thinking about other things that are not being on a diet, right? Such a waste of energy. So I think that what we really need to do as a society is think about these messages that we're sending our children. Because clearly, if 50% of kids are on a diet, the messages that we're sending are not helpful. So how can we talk about food in a way that doesn't make kids afraid of it and make kids afraid of growing and gaining weight? And also just having these conversations with them, not being afraid to talk about it, right? And ask, how are you feeling about your body and your shape and your weight? Have you been thinking about that at all? And then also the behaviors that we as adults model, right? So if you have a parent that's on a diet, that's what the kid grows up seeing is dieting, right? And thinking, oh, this is something I need to be doing. And what we really want to keep in mind here is that 95% of diets do not work. So we're really doing something that is number one, not working. And number two is setting people up to get an eating disorder. Clearly, there's so much that we could do to prevent people from initially suffering from these often deadly disorders. And this brings me to the Awareness Week and why raising awareness is so important. It enables us to talk about eating disorders and consequently prevent the disorders and help people who are on the cusp of or are already struggling. Dr. Bielik mentioned how early intervention can especially help people before they slide down to a threshold point of getting diagnosed with a disorder. So I talked with Chelsea from Mita about how her organization honors Eating Disorders Awareness Week. This year for National Eating Disorder Awareness Week, Nita has themed the week, Everybody Have a Seat at the Table, which means to be inclusive to those who are normally underrepresented in eating disorder awareness and treatment. Why did Nita choose this theme this year? And which groups are you trying to uplift, especially this time around? The other marginalized communities continue to be underrepresented. It's important that we, as a community, challenge these systematic biases and share stories from all backgrounds and experiences. Need Awareness Week is for everybody, and we hope people see pieces of themselves throughout our various campaign elements, such as blog posts, roundtable discussions, and social media engagement. For these roundtable discussions, which will live on Nita's website, Facebook, and YouTube page, we're highlighting four marginalized groups in the eating disorders community, 
the Black population, higher weight folks, and the LGBTQ plus communities, as well as caregivers. And within each of these categories, we are proud of the diverse panelists who represent multiple identities. Nita does a lot of work outside of the Awareness Week itself, too. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about your general mission and the variety of services and resources you provide? In addition to NIDA Awareness Week, which is taking place at the end of this month, we also host Weight Stigma Awareness Week, which is the last week in September. NIDA is committed to supporting individuals and families affected by eating disorders, and we're proud to serve as a catalyst for prevention, cures, and access to quality care. The NIDA Helpline is a vital anchor at one end of our mission to support individuals and families. And our Feeding Hope Fund for Clinical Research anchors the other end of our mission, which is serving as a catalyst for treatments, prevention, and cures. Additionally, we have a wealth of information on the NIDA website, which is nationaleatingdisorders.org. And we host regional conferences, which are you know, virtual right now, called NIDACon. And they're a great way to connect with others looking for information and support. And I believe our spring 2021 NIDACon will be offered during the month of May. Another opportunity to get involved is by attending a NIDA walk. Pre-COVID, we had close to 100 walks across the country to raise awareness and vital funds to support NIDA's programs and services. And this spring, we're hosting virtual regional walks with fantastic speakers and entertainments. NIDA, as well as other organizations and academic institutions, do a lot of work around eating disorder awareness and support. Now, in part two, we'll look more closely into Dr. Levinson and Dr. Bulick's research, which are both notably funded by the National Institute of Mental Health. Part two, innovating the future of eating disorder treatment. In this part, we're going to look at the work of Dr. Cynthia Bulick, founding director of NSEED, as well as Dr. Sherry Levinson, the director of University of Louisville's EAT Lab. Both do work with real-time physiological data to personalize treatment for patients, which is so important because eating disorders vary from person to person, and oftentimes other mental and physical illnesses overlap with eating disorder diagnoses. First, we'll look at Dr. Bulick's work. She'll tell you a little bit about the National Center of Excellence for Eating Disorders and you'll hear us talk about the work behind the scenes there. We date back to 2003, and SEED, as we call it, or the Center of Excellence for Eating Disorders at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And it was actually founded originally by a mom. And this mom, whose name is Rita Harris, her daughter had anorexia, and she had a horrible experience trying to find treatment for her, basically having to airlift her to New York to get treatment. And Rita vowed that no other person in North Carolina would ever have to go through what she and her daughter went through. And so she marched up to the state legislature and said, this can't happen anymore. And she got them on board and she got UNC on board to create the first endowed professorship in eating disorders in the country. And then I was recruited to take up that post. And then things just unrolled from there, where we developed this large program that has an international reputation now not just for treatment, but also for training and for research. Yeah, and I do want to touch upon some of that research there. Part of the Center of Excellence is the Eating Disorders Genetics Initiative, 
which is notably a National Institute of Mental Health funded initiative. And that is quite impressive. Can you tell our listeners about this initiative and how genetics play a role in eating disorders? Always happy to talk about EDGY or the Eating Disorders Genetics Initiative. So EDGY is the largest genetic study ever to be undertaken of eating disorders. And when I say eating disorders at this point, I mean anorexia nervosa, bulimia nervosa, and binge eating disorder. And it follows on the heels of another initiative that was called ANGI, or the Anorexia Nervosa Genetics Initiative. You can tell I like acronyms. And that study was also international, but it really changed the way we understand eating disorders. And first off, I'm going to preface all of this by saying that genes don't act alone. So both ANGI and EDGI were interested in both genetic and environmental factors. And what ANGI revealed was that the underlying genetics for anorexia nervosa suggests that it's not only a psychiatric disorder, but it is also a metabolic condition. And this was super important because we don't do a great job at treating anorexia nervosa. And what this did was open up the doors to a whole new way of looking at the illness and inviting people in who specialize in the metabolism to help us unpack the underlying biology of this illness. And now, to get to your edgy question, that Angie was funded by the Carmen Family Foundation. And because of our success with Angie, the National Institute of Mental Health gave us funding to do edgy, which is expanding our study of anorexia, but also doing the same type of work with bulimia and binge eating disorder. And they're funding sites in the United States, in New Zealand, in Australia, and in Denmark. And then other groups, including my group in Sweden, a group in the UK, and we're working on the Netherlands, Mexico, Italy, and Puerto Rico to bring on sites around the world to join the EDGY study so that we can actually get saliva samples for DNA and online information from 100,000 people who have had eating disorders at any point in their life. If you look at the history of psychiatric genetics, so all of the rest of the studies that have been done under the auspices of the Psychiatric Genomics Consortium, which is actually the biggest collaboration ever in psychiatry. I think we have over 800 clinicians and researchers involved now from 40 countries. A lot of the samples that we've had up till now have been from people of European ancestry. And some people might call that Caucasian, but we actually call it European ancestry because we're looking at your DNA to tell us when your ancestors basically migrated out of Africa. And the problem with that is we need to understand the genetic and environmental factors that influence eating disorders across different ancestries. So we need to make sure that people of African ancestry are represented, that people of Asian ancestry are representative, so that we can make sure we're really studying the full diversity of genetic and environmental factors that influence risk. And another reason why that's important is down the road, what some of this genetic research is going to help us do is really move toward personalized treatment. And if all of our personalization is based on genetic information from European ancestry people, we can't guarantee that that's actually going to work or work as well for people of other ancestries. So one of the big pushes that we have in EDGY is to make sure that we enroll people from all ancestry backgrounds into the study. You know, that makes me come to the point of, you know, that eating disorders are not often thought to be a one-size-fits-all kind of disorder. You can't find a treatment that is just, you know, you put it in and then it works. 
people's physiology and metabolism often make treatment very different from person to person. Can you talk a little bit about how the biology of eating disorders work and what you've gleaned from your research in this area? I love how you put it in terms of there's no one-size-fits-all treatment, because I can't imagine why we would ever think there would be. The example that I'm going to give is blood pressure. So lots of people around the world have hypertension or high blood pressure, but we don't have the expectation that there's going to be one magical treatment that's going to fix everyone. So for some people, changing their nutrition and their exercise or physical activity levels might be enough. For other people, a certain class of medications might work. But that class of medications might not work for other people because the cause, the underlying biological cause for their blood pressure is different. But what the clinicians who treat hypertension have is a really rich toolbox. So they have lots of different medications and lots of different lifestyle alterations that they can prescribe so that they really can personalize treatment to the individual's biology and to their particular problem. Now, in eating disorders, our toolbox is a lot more empty. We have no FDA-approved medications for anorexia nervosa. We have only one FDA-approved medication for bulimia nervosa, and that's fluoxetine or Prozac, and that goes way back when that was approved. And we have one FDA-approved medication for binge eating disorder, and that's Vyvanse, and that's fairly recent. So the clinician is kind of hampered by not having a whole lot of options. We know for children and youth with anorexia nervosa, family-based therapy works really well, but we don't have real good data for outcomes for adults with anorexia nervosa. So part of what this is all directed toward is really making sure that the clinician's toolbox becomes more full, that there are more options and more possibilities for tailoring and personalizing treatment so that we can actually better link people up with treatments that are appropriate for their age, for their history, for their eating disorder, and for their state of illness. And that really is where we need to go to make a dent in treating these illnesses well. You mentioned before how environmental and social and behavioral factors play a role in influencing eating disorders. It's not just the physical aspect. So how can we do a better job at preventing people's eating disorders based on these external factors that people encounter in their lives? So I think it's really important to think about four different groups. And sometimes when I explain this to people, I do it in terms of a deck of cards because we're all familiar with a deck of cards and you know spades and clubs and diamonds and hearts. And I like people to think about risk for eating disorders across four different categories, just like those four different suits. One of them is genetic risk factors. So you know there will never just be one gene for eating disorders. We're talking hundreds and maybe even thousands of genes, each of which have a small effect. So you get some of those genetic risk factors, you know, potentially passed down by a parent, but also potentially just sort of randomly in your genome. But you also get protective genetic factors. And you know, all of us, like it or not, get genes from two people because that's just how humans reproduce. So even if you have genetic risk factors from one parent, you might have genetic buffering or protective factors from another parent or even from the parent who had had an eating disorder themselves. But those are only two of the risk components. On the other hand, the diamonds and the hearts, 
you know, we could say that those are environmental risk factors. And that can be things like, you know, going on a diet for the first time. And we can talk a little bit about how that first that diet might feel differently if you're genetically predisposed to anorexia. It could be having a coach in a sport who, you know, gets the whole thin to win attitude. Like, you know, you really have to be thin in order to win the national championship or whatever. Or it can be teasing or even abuse. So environmental risk factors. But then the fourth component are environmental buffering factors or protective factors. And that can be, for example, having a coach who's all about strength and, you know, really reinforcing you for working hard and doing well, or parents who make sure that you have a body positive environment. And it really is the combination of those four things, genetic risk, genetic protection, environmental risk, and environmental protection that come together to create any individual's sort of risk profile for developing an eating disorder. That's a really interesting way of framing that, especially since, uh, you know, you don't often think about how the buffering and the risk factors sort of create this balancing aspect. So from there, I want to pivot toward another area of your work, which is the value of data and sort of technologies in treatment and medical research. One area you've been working in is using smartwatch data to identify risk patterns that predict binge eating and purge episodes. Can you explain how this works? Sure. And I'll even start off by saying the pandemic and having to do a lot of telemedicine and telemental health has made this research even more important because we're, you know, we're helping people through technology every day. But what we're trying to do with this project, and this is together with some really clever colleagues at the University of Utah under the direction of Jonathan Butner, is typically when you do cognitive behavioral therapy, which is really the treatment of choice for bulimia and binge eating disorder, what you do is you have people monitor their behavior. And for example, it might be Monday afternoon, and they might have had a binge on Monday morning. And then in the afternoon, they sit down with their diary and they write down, yeah, I had a binge. And then they have to recreate, well, how was I feeling at the time? And what were the triggers? And you know, what was going on in my head? What was going on around me? Who was I with? And then they might bring that self-monitoring into their therapy session later in the week. And you try to recreate the scenario and then figure out how to prevent it from happening again in the future. Well, we think that's a little old-fashioned and it doesn't treat the person in the here and now. It treats them after the event happened. So what we're trying to do is use the app recovery record, which we have adapted for the Apple Watch. And this was an app that was created by Janet Tregarthen, and it is based on CBT principles. And what we're trying to do is aggregate your basically biometrical information that we can get from the Apple Watch to be able to predict an impending binge or purge episode. So that instead of talking about it and working through it after it happens, being able to signal people before the event occurs so that they can use some of their tools to avoid the binge or avoid the purge. And right now we're in the process of collecting this smartwatch data on over a thousand people with bulimia or binge eating disorder. And then, as you can imagine, we're going and, to, and they do it over a 30 day period. So we're going to have a massive amount of data that we can use to then try to create this intervention 
to predict and intervene in the here and now. That last part that Dr. Bulick mentioned, the use of wearables and biometrics in predicting and treating bulimia and other eating disorders, is something that we'll see next in Dr. Sherry Levinson's work. Dr. Levinson runs the EAT Lab, or Eating Anxiety Treatment Lab, which aims to research novel treatments for eating disorders, train researchers in the eating disorder field, support effective prevention programs, and advocate for better treatment. I won't talk too much. I'll let Dr. Levinson get to what her lab is all about. Our lab is really uh, primarily focused on developing new treatments for eating disorders, and especially by using technology to develop new treatments. So our treatments for eating disorders are not very good. Uh, only about 50% of individuals with an eating disorder respond to the best treatments that we have. And then even amongst those 50% that respond, about 30% to 40% will end up having a relapse after successfully responding to treatment. And our lab just operates under the notion that these numbers are not acceptable and it's time to make better treatments that help more people. And we've really been working on this uh, in two different ways. We've been developing treatments that have been used in the anxiety disorders and translating them to the eating disorders, especially in online formats. And then we've also been working on personalizing treatments. So how can we make treatment work for this one specific person instead of developing a treatment that, say, might work on average, but then for 50% of people won't work well? Yeah, and that's really notable given how eating disorders tend to be illnesses that require multi-pronged treatment anyway. Clinicians, dietitians, psychiatrists, and therapists are often involved. So already it requires such a unique force to get a patient over the finish line, so to speak, in recovery. Is this why you think personalized treatment is the optimal way to approach such disorders? We didn't even talk about how depression, anxiety, substance abuse and other mental health problems are also overlapping with um, many people who have eating disorders. Exactly. Most people with an eating disorder have more than just an eating disorder, right? It's very rare that you would see somebody who doesn't also have some type of anxiety, depression, suicidal ideation, substance use. And the other thing about eating disorders is that even if, say, somebody has the same diagnosis, they may look completely different than somebody else that has the same diagnosis as them. And now, in a large part, is because of all of those co-occurring psychiatric illnesses, right? So you might have somebody who has panic disorder and another person who has post-traumatic stress disorder, and their treatment is going to need to look completely different because they're going to need help with those other problems in addition to their eating disorder. And those other problems are really related to how their eating disorder maintains itself, right? So we, we know from working clinically with eating disorders that people are really different, right? And that everything doesn't work for everyone. We also know that there's a lot of really good treatments out there, but we usually aren't quite sure about which treatment would work best for which person, right? So what our treatment is doing is really figuring out, so we'll say we have somebody come in with and they have an eating disorder, and we do, we use mobile technology with them where they're answering questions about their eating disorder symptoms, their anxiety, their depression, et cetera. 
And we can then use that assessment and say, okay, this is really important for you. We need to work on the shame that you're feeling around eating, or we need to work on your depression. And then we can match that with a treatment that we know works for that exact problem instead of just like we would normally do kind of throwing the book at them of treatments or just kind of guessing on which treatment they should best respond to. I'm curious to see how your initial research is going in this area with personalized treatment. What kind of progress are you making or what kind of information are you gleaming from the general space of precision and personalized medicine are you applying to this area of your lab? Yeah, so our results so far have been extremely promising. We just have had a pretty small sample size so far of about 40 people who have come in and done treatment with us. But for the people that we've been doing this with, number one, they really like it, which I think is important. They find that it's useful. They find that it's acceptable. We have very low dropout rate. People stick with it. They want to do it. And that's not something that we can say about most eating disorder treatments. And then the second part of this is we see really large change in the things that we want to see change. So we see eating disorder symptoms drastically reduce over the course of 10 weeks when they're doing this type of personalized treatment. So we're really, really excited about what we're finding. And right now, what we're really thinking about is, well, we want to test this type of personalized treatment against what people would normally do. And will it outperform what would normally happen when you go into eating disorder treatment? So right now, we're working on applying for funding to extend this research. We're also thinking about how we can translate this so that it's helpful for clinicians who are actually out in the community doing most of the bulk of eating disorder treatment, right? So we're working with engineers at University of Louisville to develop this software program that can really bring this into the clinic and help guide clinicians on here's something that would be really helpful for your patient. So we're, we're thinking about this in several different ways. And I mean, overall, we're just really excited about the potential that this has to really make treatment better, more efficient, less costly, um, and just reduce the large amount of suffering that we see with eating disorders. Certainly. And, you know, you mentioned how you're looking to scale up this program that you've uh, just started and are trying to get off the ground. What other ways do you see technology helping people with eating disorders? You know, there are apps out there, telehealth, but your research has this emphasis on real-time physiological data. Do you see wearables playing a role? And uh, how do you use that data to also help your patients? Our project that's funded by the National Institute of Mental Health is really all about how can wearables help with eating disorder treatment. And we know that wearables can be really, really useful for a large variety of other illnesses. So for example, in epilepsy, researchers actually have developed a system that alerts someone when they're about to have a seizure, and they can predict seizure onset with really high accuracy, which, as you can imagine, is really a game changer for epilepsy, right? And so we're really taking this idea and trying to do the same thing with eating disorders. So we know that different types of eating disorder symptoms are related to physiological indices like heart rate variability, for example. And so what we're doing now is we're collecting data on heart rate variability on skin conductance, so basically how much electricity is happening on your skin. 
and movement or acceleration. So how much the person is moving during the day. Again, we know that there's differences in movement in people that have eating disorders versus people that don't. And what we're really hoping to build is an alert system that can let someone know if they're headed towards having an eating disorder relapse, which is really our ultimate goal is to prevent these relapse events that happen really, really frequently. And so that we're really in the first step of this technology, but eventually what we're hoping to do is have a wearable band that can alert patients, but also alert carers and can alert treatment teams to let the team know, hey, your patient is needing a little bit more help right now. And that's ultimately where we see this type of research going. Listening to both Drs. Bulick and Levinson, it's clear that real-time data and wearable technology have a big role to play in the future of eating disorder treatment. Given that eating disorders vary so drastically from person to person, like I said before, both biologically, as we saw with Dr. Bulick's work, and psychologically, this data is key to unlocking the potential of personalizing treatment for people with eating disorders. In the medical space, personalized or precision medicine has been an emerging area of study lately. With more genomic information, like in Dr. Bulick's work, and ability to collect real-time physiological data, like with Dr. Levinson's work too, precision medicine becomes closer to becoming a reality, and doctors' toolboxes for treating specific illnesses like eating disorders becomes a more manageable situation as well. All of us are coming at it from slightly different angles. And where this is going to go is we're all doing these sort of like first layer work, and then we're all going to pull it together, you know, and we're going to find that we're going to be able to include, you know, this sort of, you know, Apple Watch based data. And then we'll start combining that with genetic data and potentially combining that with microbiome data. And then all of a sudden, all of these things that right now seem like they might be the sort of disparate areas of research are actually going to converge. And then we're going to sort of leapfrog in our understanding of these illnesses, both in terms of understanding their causes, but also figuring out how to intervene in much more effective ways. But even with Dr. Bulick and Dr. Levinson's research underway, they still emphasize to me that prevention is critical. It's been particularly hard to prevent emerging and relapsing cases of eating disorders amid COVID-19, as we'll hear in this next part. But we'll also talk in part three about existing options out there to help yourself or loved ones at risk for an eating disorder. Part three, COVID-19 and eating disorders and how to help. Unfortunately, like many mental illness diagnoses amid the COVID-19 pandemic, eating disorder treatment referral rates and diagnoses this year have been on the rise. Isolation, mental distress, and other factors have made many vulnerable to reaching the threshold for eating disorder diagnosis. Dr. Bulick explained three studies her group did across the U.S. and two different countries that indicated rises of eating disorder program referrals this year. And while COVID-19 has been difficult on people at risk for these disorders, the advent of telemedicine, as Dr. Bulick explains, will also show hope for rising accessibility to treatment that wasn't here before the pandemic. We were really fortunate to get out in the field with a study 
three studies, actually, one in the United States, one in the Netherlands, and one in Sweden. And the U.S. and the Netherlands have been published already. And we're actually coming up on our year follow-up. I think when we started the study, we never imagined that we would be still deep in this pandemic a year later. But we found very early on that there was definitely an increase in referrals to eating disorders programs across the country and across the world, as we can see in our Dutch and Swedish data. And people just, we know that eating disorders thrive in isolation and, you know, quarantine and distancing have been critical for containing the epidemic or the pandemic, sorry. But at the same time, those are exactly the things that can make eating disorders worse. And we saw that in the data. We saw people, even who had been well for a long time, saying, I'm really on the verge of relapse because this is just so triggering. I'm living in a triggering environment. You know, early on when people were stockpiling food, you know, the types of food that you kept in your pantry were exactly the type of things that could be really triggering for someone with bulimia or binge eating disorder. So we saw all sorts of problems in terms of exacerbation and even reigniting of eating disorders. But the one silver lining that we want to keep active has been insurance companies paying for telehealth. Because you're right, you know, there are so many states that don't have specialist centers. And there are so many people, even in states that do have specialist centers, who can't make it to the specialist center because they live hours away. And the huge tragedy in the United States is the number of people with eating disorders who are uninsured and can't afford treatment. So I think one thing that we know telehealth has allowed us to do is we've been able to reach so many people who live far away from UNC, for example who otherwise would not have been able to access care by a specialist. So what we're hoping and what we need people to really argue and campaign and fight for is to make sure that telehealth continues to be covered after the pandemic is in our rearview mirror, because we don't want this to be an aberration. We want this to be permanent. Chelsea Croningold from NIDA has also emphasized that COVID-19 has caused a lot more distress for those with eating disorders. She told me that NIDA's National Eating Disorders Helpline has seen a 40% increase in call volume since the pandemic. But she also said that telemedicine, as well as other resources out there and on NIDA's website, can help. The first recommended step would be to simply educate yourself about the warning signs and symptoms of eating disorders. And friends and family are often key in encouraging their loved ones to seek out help. So if you are concerned about a loved one's relationship with food, body image, or exercise issues, we have a section on our website called How to Help, which provides tips for effectively communicating your concerns, as well as our parent toolkit, which is a comprehensive guide for anyone who wants to understand more about how to support a family member or friend affected by an eating disorder. You can also contact the Need a Helpline and one of our trained volunteers can provide you with additional information, resources, and support. NIDA also engages in outreach through its social media channels to foster a pro-recovery safe space for people to get information and to connect with others with similar experiences. And although they've moved digitally since COVID-19 too, NIDACon and NIDA Walks are programs that NIDA runs to accomplish awareness and connectivity across the eating disorder community. This year's Spring Nidacon will take place in May. But above all else, 
The greatest tool you have in spreading awareness and preventing eating disorders is in talking about it with the people around you. If you think that you might be struggling with an eating disorder or if somebody that you love seems to be struggling, don't wait. Talk to them about it. Reach out for help. There is help out there. There's treatments that work. And life is so much better on the other side of an eating disorder. And remember, recovery is better on the other side. Also, I think an important note to end on is that at NIDA, we believe that full recovery is possible with the right help and support. For more resources or information about eating disorders, go to nationaleatingdisorders.org. The NIDA helpline is 1-800-931-2237. To learn more about Dr. Bulick's research in EDGY, go to edgy.org and nceedus.org. To check out Dr. Levinson's lab, see louisvilleeatlab.com. HealthCast is a production of Government CIO Media and Research. For more podcasts, head to governmentciomedia.com slash podcasts. If you liked what you heard, let us know by leaving a review in iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. HealthCast is produced by Amy Kluber, hosted by Melissa Harris, Adam Patterson, and Faith Ryan. If you're interested in sponsoring a podcast, contact us at sponsor at governmentcio.com.